1: International Science Radio Show. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we've got Red Skies Over Sydney, Dog Intelligence and Rats on Twitter. And in the studio is Mark West, with the story on the Red Skies Over Sydney.
2: Waking last Wednesday, the 23rd of September, was a very eerie experience. Blood-red light peeked through the sides of my blinds, and given that I was half asleep at the time, I thought the four horsemen of the apocalypse had come to earth. When I shook the haziness from my head and peeked outside, the view was astonishing. Not surprisingly, Twitter had loads of comments and on-the-fly photos, and the TV and news broadcasts were full of dust storm stories. Dust storms are not uncommon in Australia. Indeed, central and eastern Australia are a major global source of atmospheric dust. And this particular storm estimated to be about 600 kilometres long and dumping 75,000 tonnes of dust into the Tasman Sea every hour, could be headed to the New Zealand ski slopes. That'll teach them to beat us at rugby. Dust can travel a very long way in the atmosphere, with dust from Chinese storms found in the French Alps. The storm has its origins in the Indian and Southern Oceans, where low-pressure storms create severe cold fronts. Low-pressure air sinks to the ground, forcing hotter, higher-pressure air upwards. This can cause thunderstorms, and on Monday, winds of more than 100 kilometres per hour formed in South Australia. As inland Australia is in drought, the winds picked up dust not fixed to the ground by vegetation. The dust likely came from the Lake Eyre Basin, according to ABC Science Online, and has caused the worst pollution ever seen in New South Wales. The reddish colour of the sky is an interesting phenomenon. Normally during the day, the sky is blue. This is because of Rayleigh scattering. Shorter wavelength light from the sun, like blue, is scattered by the air in all directions to a greater degree than longer wavelength light, like red. The amount of scattering is related to the fourth power of the wavelength. Blue light, with a wavelength of around 400 nanometers, is scattered about 10 times more efficiently than red light, with a wavelength of around 700 nanometers. The scattering in this case is mainly due to oxygen and nitrogen molecules smaller than the wavelength of the light itself. Due to the scattering of blue, when you look directly at the sun during the day, you see more of the longer wavelength light, which is why it appears yellow. The rest of the sky is lit by the diffuse scattered blue light. At dawn and dusk, the sun's light has to travel through more of the atmosphere to get to your eyes, as it comes in at a tangent to the earth. Go on, I dare you to draw it. This means even more blue is scattered and a larger piece of the sky looks an even deeper red. Dust particles are quite large compared with oxygen and nitrogen, and so do not scatter light in the same way. Some of the dust absorbs light more effectively at blue wavelengths than at red wavelengths, meaning that light shone through it will appear more red. Dust also scatters sunlight, but as the particles are large, this scattering is independent of wavelength. This means that the dust particles act something like tiny mirrors, diffusing the light throughout the sky. This is why the red colour was so intense at dawn. As the light that hit the dust was already red due to Rayleigh scattering, it was then scattered throughout the whole sky. Normally at sunrise, the red colour is confined to only a small part of the sky. The presence of dust, and pollution for that matter, can cause beautiful effects. As the sun climbed higher in the sky, the red colour softened. Eventually the sky just looked a dirty orange, which is the colour of the iron-rich dirt.
1: You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We got
0: unions, we got dorms, we got gyms and tennis courts. We got coasters and athletic boards and lots of dandy sports. We got basketball and football teams, they win a lot of games. What ain't we got? We ain't got brains we got buildings, we've got rooms, we got students and co-eds, we got deans in 16 flavors, we got chairmen, we got heads, we fraternities, sororities, a business office, well, what ain't we got, you know, damn well, we've got everything a university needs except a little imagination, there isn't nearly enough gray matter in the entire administration, There is nothing like a brain Nothing in the world There is nothing you can name That is anything like a brain We got surveys, we got tests We get lectures, we get shows We get ratings by the students And two kinds of radios We got courses in arithmetic We teach you how to spell What ain't we got? So you can't tell? There are lots of things in life that are beautiful, but, brother, there is one particular thing which in any way, shape, or form is not like any other. There is nothing like a brain, nothing in the world. There is nothing you can name that is anything like a brain. Nothing thinks like a brain, nothing acts like a brain, or reacts like a brain, or attracts like a brain. There ain't a thing that's wrong with SUI that can't be cured by getting a guy with a genuine A1 22-carat brain.
1: There's suggestions that our evolution means that we're in danger from Twitter Uh, and the internet in general.
2: Well, you and I are both, well, I don't know if we'd call us addicts, but we're both there.
1: We're both connected. We're both connected. Or as Mark Pesci likes to say, hyper-connected. Oh, right. Because, well, if you have Twitter on your phone in particular, then you can be connected 24-7.
2: That's true. I do have Twitter on my phone, although I don't get direct messages because I don't think you can do it in Australia yet, can you?
1: You can, but you have to know the tricks. Oh, okay. Or you have to have a phone that's set up to do it. If you've got an iPhone, you can get a Twitter application that just goes on to the internet. If you have data on your phone.
2: Oh, I can get the data on my phone, but I mean like just not as a... I don't get a beep beep every time I get a direct message.
1: You, you can have that set You up. can do that? Oh, you okay. can do that. You heard that here. Yes, you can do that. <laughs> there are ways of doing that. There's, There's all sorts of ways of setting your phone up to Twitter. But the important thing about Twitter and Google and sending SMS texts is that you get an instant response for your efforts. And there's an article by Emily Yoff from Slate Magazine where she's looking at research on rats and the way rats respond to rewards and the dopamine centres of their brain how if they could hit a lever that would give them a reward they would keep on hitting that lever. And so what they're saying is that Twitter is like that because, after all, it updates very often. Oh, got a message. And then you wait a little bit more. There's more messages from people you like, people you know. If you put out a question, very often you'll get answers pretty, pretty quickly. So your reward center keeps getting hit. So you keep on paying attention to Twitter. Some people have it like a ticker tape in the background while they work. And they can pay a little bit of attention to Twitter, a little bit of attention to other things. Back in the 19th century... I think it was when they had ticker tape machines, the various capitalists of the day were able to keep an eye on the ticker tape to see the stocks go up and down, and occasionally send out orders with the runners on what to buy and what not to buy, while they had conversations over port with their friends as a background thing. They'd learned to multitask their brains, and they made lots of money. It's possible that people with Twitter are doing a similar thing. They're seeing messages in the background, and when it's important, their full attention goes there.
2: And you get the little dopamine release.
1: You get a little dopamine release. And what they're saying is you get the same thing from Google. When you, because our brains, they say, they're suggesting, are hardwired to do seeking. The desire to search is not just about searching for our physical needs. It's not just about hunting and gathering and getting food or shelter or tools. That we also get excited about abstract rewards. So that we get when we get thrilled about the world of ideas, about making intellectual connections and getting meaning... Um, It's all these seeking circuits in our brain that are firing and giving us dopamine rewards. So what happens when you sit at the computer and you go to look up something and you instantly find an answer? Because if it's known to humanity, you can find it through Google.
2: You can find it through Google.
1: So how long do you sit at Google? Do you just look for the first thing that you went to look for and then stop? Or do you keep on searching and searching and searching and searching and see where it leads?
2: Well, once I'm on Wikipedia, I pretty much just follow links.
1: Exactly, exactly. So all of human knowledge is at your disposal, and you ask a question, you get an answer, and you get a reward. And then you do it again, and you get a reward, and you do it again, and so you keep on doing it. So they're suggesting it's not because you're satisfying your curiosity and feeding your brain, which is how I would see it, but the writers are suggesting and some of the scientists are suggesting that this is a neurotransmitter reward, and you're getting hooked in a way, on this repetitive behavior to keep getting a reward.
2: Maybe that's the same thing. Like, that's where curiosity comes from, perhaps. I wonder, is there a uh, is there a similar uh, dopamine release when you post onto Twitter? I mean, there's so much rubbish on there. You know, I'm having my corn flags. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And same with, like, publishing a, a blog. It's all self-publicity. Facebook. Put up photo of yourself drunk the other evening for whatever reason. People put that up. I wonder, is there a a similar type of release uh, in the in the, in
1: self-promotion. I think it's a different reward. I think what you get when you're self-promoting is there's, maybe you perceive that there's an increase in your status. Like literally, it's a status update in both senses of the word. Yes, right, okay. Because people know what you're doing, and so your followers, and I mean, hey, how esteem building is having followers. It's true. Know what you're up to. You might have posted something funny or you've posted something interesting, hopefully, and you've contributed. You've made a contribution that other people and if they retweet it and copy it onto their friends and you can see that they've copied it to their friends, you get a big
2: You get a big buzz. That's big true. buzz
1: in esteem. Because these people thought what you said was worth repeating.
2: It's still it also still works like for posting a blog if you don't know how many people are following you or, it's true. or subscribing. You still people
1: still do it. But there's more of a buzz if you get direct feedback. I mean, that's one of the advantages of Twitter. Like, if you're on a blog, you may get to look at how many page reads you've got. Yeah, you can look up
2: your stats. Look up your stats. See comments list and things like that. Exactly.
1: But even if, but you're basically putting stuff out there. Look, when we broadcast on 2SCR, we don't really know how many listeners we have in Sydney, and we have only a, a guess about how many listeners we have around Australia. But on the podcast, we've got numbers.
2: Write in and let us know if you were to
1: ser. we write email to diffusion at 2 dot com. That's diffusion at 2 dot or follow follow us on Twitter, where I'm Ian Wolfe as one word and Mark.
2: I am Mark Westius, M A R C West I U S, just exactly. to be difficult.
1: Exactly. So you can follow us. And we'll know that you're listening to the show because at the moment, it's a bit of a leap of faith. We, we know we've got listeners, but we don't really know who you are and we don't hear from you very often and we occasionally get emails. And we're really delighted when we do get emails because it confirms that there are people listening.
2: That's true. We like that dopamine release.
1: We do. We do. Now, another story I had here was about dogs. Intelligent dogs. Well, this is the thing. How intelligent are dogs? Most dog owners are pretty damn impressed with their dogs. Yes. So, the study is apparently... Well, the article... The article I've stolen from Eureka Alert, a service of the Australian Association for the Advancement of Science says that dogs have an intelligence on par with two-year-old humans. They can understand more than 150 words. They can intentionally deceive other dogs and people to get treats. And this is all from the research of psychologist and leading researcher Stanley Corrin of the University of British Columbia. He gave a talk recently at the American Psychological Association on how dogs think. Now, I recognize the name of Stanley Corrin because several years ago... I did a story on his research on pigs. All right. Where pigs are enormously more intelligent than dogs. And he did a whole lot of study on basically you put specs on the pigs and he gave them joysticks they could manipulate with their snout and little food rewards. And he found that they could focus on a computer monitor with these specs, which they otherwise couldn't see close up. And they could do very complex computer games for rewards that dogs totally failed on. And in fact, they could communicate with a synthetic, simple language that he taught them. Interesting. So, they I mean, pigs have big brains. It turns out that if only they had uh, opposable thumbs, they'd be they rather be, big might, in the world. Might
2: be Animal Farm all over again. Might well, be Animal For the farm. first time, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, on to the dogs. He's now working on dogs. And everyone wants to believe that their dogs are thinking, because after all, you you empathise with the dogs that you like. And what they say is that... the. Intelligence of dogs varies with the breed And there's three types of dog intelligence There's instinctive What the dog's bred to do There's how well the dog learns from its environment Adaptive intelligence And then there's working and obedience The equivalent of school learning So they looked at the different types Of intelligence for different breeds Border collies were number one Poodles were next Followed by German Shepherds Fourth were golden retrievers Then Dobermans Shetland sheepdogs, and then Labrador retrievers at the end. For language, the average dog can learn 165 words, including signals as words. Super dogs, in the top 20% of dog intelligence, can learn 250 words.
2: 250 different words?
1: Or signals, or or gestures, or... or noises that mean something. So the upper limit to learn language seems to be... is based on a study of a border colleague named Rico who showed knowledge of 200 spoken words and demonstrated fast-track learning, which they previously believed was only found in humans and language-learning apes. Now, dogs can also count up to four or five, which which, which is not bad for animals that don't have abstract thinking, according to our usual way of thinking. So they can count to four or five, and they have a basic understanding of arithmetic, and they'll notice errors in simple computations, such as one plus one equals one, or one plus one equals three. They'll know it's wrong.
2: How do they? How do they do that test?
1: Well, four studies looked at how dogs solve spatial problems by modelling human or other dogs' behaviour using a barrier-type problem. And they don't really tell you here how they did that test. I'm sorry. I'm just th- I thought they did. I looked a bit further, and they don't. So we don't. I'll ha- we'll have to look into how he tests the dogs' arithmetic. I know for children. They do things by putting treats and adding them But I don't know how they got the dogs to spot the errors. Maybe they're looking for dogs being surprised. In babies, they look for babies that are surprised.
2: Oh, okay. When they
1: see things that don't make sense. So they'll work out the babies can count or the babies have an idea about what's supposed to happen next when the babies suddenly give way more attention to something because it's not right. Yeah. But I'm not sure if they do that for dogs. It's just a guess.
2: These sorts of things are really hard because... uh, you don't know if they're, they're learning or, or they're sort of just obeying, they're being trained to do something.
1: It's very hard. So what they're saying is that there's four studies looking at how dogs solve spatial problems by modelling human or other dogs' behaviour using a barrier-type problem. So through observation, dogs can learn the location of treats, better routes in the environment, so the fastest way to a favourite chair how to operate mechanisms such as latches, and the meaning of words and symbolic concepts, sometimes simply by listening to people speak and watching what they do. So during play, dogs are capable of deliberately trying to deceive other dogs and people to get rewards, and they're nearly as successful in deceiving humans as humans are in deceiving dogs.
2: I know our dogs used to uh, jump up and open doors.
1: Well, that's operating a simple machine.
2: They they used to... uh, Push the latch i don't know I don't know how much they learnt whether they just they just ran at the door and realized if they <laughs> ran at it a bit higher, something different would happen, but I guess that's a that's kind of learning. I watched mm. a fascinating show the other night. It was a BBC documentary on the breeds of dogs. I don't know if you saw this, but some of the things that we've done to dogs over the years.
1: It's a cruel thing to do to a wolf. Oh. basically, these are wolves that we've inbred
2: completely inbred, and the argument I mean, this was because uh, it was a BBC documentary, and um, some of the the, the show uh, the show dogs in Britain. It's a big thing, and um, they were saying that the breeds back back in the day. I can't give an exact date, but you know, pre nineteen hundred say, dogs were bred for a purpose. So if a dog had short legs, or if a dog had a big snout, or whatever, it, it was for a purpose for hunting or for something. But then it, these sorts of features get encoded in various rule books. And so uh, it just gets more exaggerated over time. And now these dogs are so inbred, there are so many genetic deficiencies in these dogs. I don't know what it means for dog intelligence, but I don't think it can be a good
1: thing. No, inbreeding generally isn't. I mean, the problem is you might be able to inbreed dogs for greater intelligence, but they'd have all these genetic diseases as a result.
2: Well, that's true. And these because these dogs get just so refined, they're essentially breeding with their parents and their brothers and sisters and... It's a bizarre world.
1: Because that's how inbreeding works. I mean, for all the people who are against um, genetic engineering, the idea of genetic engineering is you introduce genes for what you want, whereas traditional breeding techniques is incest. It's basically it's inbreeding, so it's bound to lead to genetic defects. And traditionally, of course, you don't care that there are genetic defects because they die or you kill them or you just don't let them breed. It's cruel. Basically, it's cruel. Now that we care about the results, now that we actually care about the ones who suffer, suddenly it's not such a good thing. And what I think that program was showing is like some of these dogs, which is just, they're not, un- they're not freaks of nature. They're standard breeds that have been around for a long time that are very popular as pets. Their brains are too big for their skulls and they suffer. They're in pain all the time. Yep. And it's simple things like that where they might look a certain way according to the rules of Crufts, but their brains are too big for their skulls and they're in pain.
2: It's amazing to think that we can make a dog that's like a foot long and and, and uh, you know fifteen centimeters off the ground, and then we can make some Saint Bernards. And exactly. It's essentially, humans made them from from wolves wherever they originally patrolled yes. uh, Europe, presumably. I guess I don't know where dogs came from.
1: All but over, but yes, yeah. yes. That we've turned wolves into freaks. Phenomenal. <laughs> 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 that's amazing.
3: Hey, you, Tom. It's Bob. From the office down the hall It's good to see you buddy How've you been? Things have been okay for me Except that I'm a zombie now I really wish you'd let us in I think I speak for all of us When I say I understand Why you folks might hesitate to our demand But here's an FYI You're all gonna die Screaming All we wanna do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean no one's gonna eat your eyes All we wanna do is eat your brains We're at an impasse here If you open up the door We'll all come inside and eat your brain I don't want to nitpick Tom But is this really your plan? Spend your whole life locked inside a mall Maybe that's okay For all that bigger picture stuff But Tom, that's what I do And I plan on eating you slowly All we want to do is eat your brains We're not unreasonable I mean, no one's gonna eat your eyes for my The doors. I guess we'll table this for now. I'm glad to see you take constructive criticism well. Thank you for your time. I know we're all busy as hell. And we'll put this thing to bed when I bash your I mean, no one's going to eat your eyes. All we want to do is eat your brains. We're at an impasse here. Maybe we should compromise. Open up the doors. We'll all come inside and eat your brains.
1: And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments or suggestions, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your own voice, passionately communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com. That's diffusion at 2scr.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. On the program were Mark West and myself, Ian Wolfe. Diffusion was produced in the Sydney studios of 2SCR and distributed around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: The parts of the brain performed by (laughs) the brain.
0: Yes. Neocortex frontal lobe. hippocampus neural node right hemisphere pons and cortex visual sylvian fisher pineal left hemisphere cerebellum left cerebellum right synapse hypothalamus striatum dendrite on fibers matter gray
3: brain stem,
0: brain stem. central tegmental pathway temporal lobe white core matter four brains go brain brain central fissure cord spinal parietal men meningeal vein medulla oblongata and lobe limbic microelectrodes oh. the brain That ought to keep the little squirts happy. Yeah.